Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Akil Amar around the time of his birthday. So happy birthday, Akil. Uh, thank you, Andy, and also to you. Thank you. And we have our special guests back again. So I guess that makes it this extra special guests. Um, so, you know, Professors Will Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson are back again. So welcome, uh, gentlemen. Good to be here. Good to be back. So I'm happy to report to our audience that uh, you ate the previous podcast up in gulps. Uh, we had our largest audience ever. Um, wow. It was actually substantially more. Um, and, you know, we're, we've been building our audience so that every week has been the largest audience ever in a sense. But this is uh, enough enough of an increase that we could say that it absolutely is due to the fact that uh, we had extremely handsome guests on. And, uh, and that's, that's exactly why. Um, on our yes, uh, Andy, my, my face is just perfect for podcasts. So I, I totally agree with you about the handsome quarter. Well, I think what, you know, what, what, we, what we can say is that the public is very engaged. Our audience is very engaged with this issue, um, which, of course, suggests that they're taking your arguments, you know, very seriously. So let's, uh, let's get right to it. Last time we spent 10 minutes telling you uh, all the credentials of our distinguished guests, and we're not going to do that again. So we encourage you to listen to the previous episode, to listen to that as well as the actual episode. But what I do want to do, though, is start off by uh, reading to you once again the text of, the, of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, since that's obviously going to be relevant to the discussion, and you may, and you may not remember every word. So here it is. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. Okay, so there you go. And, of course, we had a a detailed argument in the lengthy um, article, which we summarized last time. I'm going to summarize it again very quickly. One is that Section 3, which I just read you, remains enforceable. It's not a dead letter. It was not terminated by the, any action of Congress or, or just the passage of time or anything else. It's self-executing, so it produces, in, in effect, the requirement for office that one not be disqualified under its provisions. It doesn't require enacting legislation or anything like that. Um, if there are other provisions, earlier provisions, that is, of the Constitution, or including amendments that came before the 14th Amendment that are in conflict with Section 3, they're superseded in those contexts by Section 3. An example of that is uh, a bill of attainder. We went through other examples. Um, fourth point, Section 3 covers a broad range of conduct and a broad range of officers. And the fifth point of the argument is that Donald Trump and probably many others are disqualified under its terms. Okay, so that's 
That's what we uh, what what was argued by the authors, and we started to talk about some critiques towards the end of the episode um, that have been offered, and one of them was by distinguished uh, professor and ju- and former judge, um, federal judge Michael McConnell. Um, he offered two main critiques. The first one we discussed last time, but just to review it quickly, basically it's that the the a rigorous uh, enforcement of Section 3 would create uh, a mess um, and should therefore be interpreted in the narrowest way possible. Our, our guests can respond to that again. Um, would you like to just quickly repeat your, your critique of that, of that critique, mm-hmm. Michael? Basically, I think the point is that that's a political objection and not a legal one, that you think that this would be a bad constitutional provision or could be misused or would be dangerous. It's not really an argument against what the provision actually means and says. And and Professor McConnell admits that. He said, I haven't done the, the research on this. It's just sort of adopting a preference for reading into the Constitution restrictions out of policy concerns. And that's totally antithetical to what we think is the correct approach, which is you ascertain the original meaning and you follow the meaning of the Constitution where it leads without fear and you deal with abuses when abuses come up. So I think that was the nub of what I said last week. Does that sound familiar to you, Will? Uh, yes, I think you know you have two choices about how to read the Constitution. One is to do what Sam and P. Chase did and decide you know in advance what the Constitution is supposed to say, and you're going to read it to say what it's supposed to say, regardless of what it actually says. Uh, and the other is to trust the Constitution and try to figure out what it actually says and what its actual original meaning is uh, and follow that where it leads you. Uh, and we are not in Sam and P. Chase's camp, but I think uh, Michael is. Um, in terms of the concern that, that Professor McConnell expresses, namely when he says that it could, quote, empower partisans to seek disqualification every time a politician supports or speaks in support of the objectives of a political riot. Um, Then he says, imagine how bad actors will use this theory. Would you say it's fair to say then that it becomes important when you're discussing this provision to say not only whether it applies in a particular case, but to be fairly rigorous about how it should be applied, in other words, so that we can see, you know, the upper and lower bounds of the application of it? This is Mike Paulson. Um, Yeah, it's important to get it right um, without a thumb on the scales in terms of policy and to get it as right as you can and to get the, uh, uh, the meaning of the constitutional terms as precise as you can in accordance with the original meaning the words would have had at the time that they were adopted. And we do a number of things. We look to the 1860s political context. We look to Lincoln's use of the term insurrection and rebellion to characterize the Civil War. We look at at important enactments of Congress in 1862 during the midst of the Civil War that sort of elucidated the terms engage in uh, insurrection, rebellion. What are the sorts of things they thought counted? And, uh, you know, you use these historical sources, these historical markers of original meaning as, as benchmarks, right? And it's sort of frame it and it does establish parameters. I think there will be fuzziness in application at the margins. There will be some cases, just as there is in applying a constitutional provision of any sort, 
There'll be some cases it'll be hard cases. There are some cases it'll be core cases, easy cases, easily fall within the meaning of the Constitution's terms. And there will be some applications that will call for a little more subtle inquiry or, or thoughtfulness. And we explored at some length some of those uh, peripheral situations, but uh, basically resolved what we thought was the core meaning of insurrection and rebellion. I do have sympathy to people who are hearing about this issue for the first time and think like, whoa, that sounds like a big can of worms. Maybe I'd better put Pandora's box back on the table. Because the first time you encounter sort of a, a weighty constitutional provision whose meaning you don't understand, that's a totally understandable reaction. Now, I think the you know the right reaction is not to just put it down forever and ignore it. Um, the right reaction is then to dig in and do the work um, and to try to figure out, you know, triangulating all the different sources of meaning as much as we can about it. And so to the extent there are ambiguities, I think that's a good reason it's going to require more research, maybe even, you know, more research than we've done already, although we've, we've uh, added a lot of pages to the to the pile. Um, but, but it is a reason to not just sort of like go with your gut instinct, uh, when you hear these phrases. And and especially as applied to Donald Trump and the election that confronts America over the next year and a half, we really want to think very carefully, not just about the words uh, insurrection and rebellion, but engage in and aid and comfort and exactly how those words fit together. So we're going to talk about that, I hope, by the end of this episode. And it may very well be that Mike and Will at some point may write a sequel article talking about some of these issues as applied in detail uh, with great care to the events leading up to and on, maybe even after, January 6th. I don't know. Will, do you have another 126 pages in you? I, I'm, I'm pretty much. As someone, who, as someone who has written, you know, books that have been described by favorable reviewers as doorstops. <laughs> I don't have and many of them. You know, I say, come on in, jump into the deep end. The water is fine. Well, this was one of the most important things that Mike was right about in the course of drafting this is how long it should be. Uh, like around the time we got to be at 35,000, 40,000 words, I was like, Mike, we've got to stop. We have too much article here. Like this is just, this is, you know, unless you want to write a book, uh, this is as much as we can do. And Mike said, look, this is important. People are going to read it. We just got to say everything there is to say. And so it's, you know, 62,000 words because we just kept going. Uh, but I agree. There might be, there might be more words. I mean, I, I think I'll just say the article already obviously has several different claims. And so one of the questions is how far along are we carrying people? You know, if you think this provision is dead because Congress appealed in 1872, none of this matters. If you think only the Supreme Court can interpret Section 3 or only Congress can enforce Section 3, then you don't care what we think about insurrection or rebellion. But if we've carried you far enough, be worrying about the definition of engage in, I'm happy. And I agree. There's more to say about that. Right. You've cleared a whole bunch of hurdles. Oh, and the claim, oh, it doesn't apply to presidents. It applies to presidents, electors, and dog catchers, but somehow not to, not to presidents. Because, you know, who, who really worries about a president who, as a president, you know, supported insurrection and could be president again? Nah, that, that, that wouldn't have been a concern. So, 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 of course, yes, this is actually, these are the, are the, the questions you get when you're winning, when you're succeeding, that you, that you want to get. And we'll talk about them by the end of this podcast, I hope, you know, some of some of these questions as applied very specifically to Donald J. Trump. Yeah. And I think when we when we do get to that and we will get to it before too long, 
I think it would be useful maybe to engage in the analysis of what happened with Trump in terms of what this uh, how this clears the hurdles that are that are set up, not just okay, it's an insurrection or something like that, but this is an example of so this would be an insurrection if this were true, it wouldn't be this would be aid and comfort, this wouldn't be you know that that sort of thing and and why so it can be useful to look at it in in terms of of helping us uh as a as a nation avoid you know, having every Tom, Dick, and Harry and Jane, you know, uh, put up uh, under Section 3. Okay. The common law method that is exemplified um, alongside originalism by our conversation today and our conversation last week, originalism is looking, you know, carefully at a text, but common law lawyers often understand concepts in the context of specific cases, specific fact patterns. The fact pattern illuminates the actual legal text at issue, which in turn casts light on this fact pattern and other fact patterns. And you work back and forth between facts and words often to, to um, in, in, in classic common law fashion. Since the Constitution isn't just law, but law that's enforceable in courts and will, and Mike remind us, not just in courts, but also in courts. You're going to have the, this common law method of legal reasoning moving back and forth between words and facts. Yes, the bird, the burned and hairy hand, for example. <laughs> yes. Okay, so th- that was um, a little bit on the first point that uh, Professor McConnell made. And his second point... Uh, he said, he claimed that Section 5, because Section 5 of the 14th Amendment gives Congress a clear role in enforcement of the amendment in general, it should be the ones to set the standard. This is a quote from his article with a ellipsis. Congress ha- has enacted a statute, dot, dot, dot. This mode of enforcement has been enacted by the entity entrusted with responsibility to enforce the 14th Amendment, dot, 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 with due process at every step. It is not obvious that partisan officials in state governments, without specific authorization or checks and balances, should apply broad and uncertain definitions to decide who can run for office in a republic when responsible officials with clear statutory and constitutional authority have not done so. Okay, so your response. This is something we've heard a lot in the kind of internet reactions to this article and the statute if people do want the citation, is 18 U.S.C. 2383 uh, and is a statute that that criminalizes inciting insurrection. And so I, I often hear the gut reaction to the article, you know, well, has Trump been convicted of inciting insurrection? Has he even been charged with inciting insurrection? You know, if not, then no Section 3. Uh, I just think this makes two mistakes, one big one and one small one. The big one is this is a replay of sort of, again, of Sam and Chase's argument in Griffin's case. One of the arguments Sam and Chase made in Griffin's case is, under Section 5, Congress has the power to enforce uh, Section 3. Therefore, if it doesn't follow, uh, only Congress can enforce Section 3. Therefore, nobody else can enforce Section 3. That's not how we treat any other part of the 14th Amendment. Congress can enforce Section 1, uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clause, the Privileges and Immunities Clause. That doesn't mean that nobody else can enforce those. It doesn't mean that Section 1 is dead. Congress can enforce the 13th Amendment, abolishing slavery. That doesn't mean slavery was not abolished until Congress acted. Slavery was abolished as soon as the amendment was ratified. So I think that's it, it is just a, a sort of specific version of the replay of the Sam and Chase argument. But there's a small point that I do think is very important, which is 
This statute, 18 U.S.C. 2383, was not, in fact, enacted under Congress's Section 5 power to enforce Section 3. This statute actually predates Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It comes from the Second Confiscation Act, signed into law by President Lincoln. It was one of the statutes that inspired Section 3. So this is backwards. It's not that Congress read Section 3 and said, okay, this is our process for enforcing it. It's that during the Civil War, Congress enacted a bunch of legislation such as this. And then after the Civil War, Congress said, okay, what's the general principle we're going to draw from our own actions? What are we going to do going forward? What they did with Section 3. And Section 3, you know, Andy, you, at the beginning of the podcast, you read the last sentence of Section 3. It gives Congress a role. That role is to give people amnesty by a two-thirds vote if Congress wants to. So the Congress intentionally sort of flipped the normal order of operations. It said, if you commit insurrection or rebellion, if you engage in insurrection or rebellion, you're disqualified. If we think that's gotten out of hand, if we think it's better for the country, for Donald Trump to be able to run for president, you know, on the ballot, that can happen as long as he convinces a small sliver of the opposing party that he's not too dangerous to be trusted with the power. But that's the process they set forward. So I agree with what Will said. I think with everything that Will said, I want to add two things. That the fact that Congress can enforce, I, I repeat, Will, does not mean that only Congress can enforce. And that's not how we treat all sorts of other provisions of the 14th Amendment and the other Reconstruction Amendments. I do think, just building on earlier episodes that we've had, Andy, that there may be certain things that only Congress can do. For example, create criminal liability for violations of certain provisions of the Reconstruction Amendments because there's no federal common law of crimes. We've talked about that in previous episodes. Only God can make a tree in the poem. Only Congress can make a federal criminal law of a certain sort. So that's point one. Point two for our audience is Section Three is so interesting for the audience members who have listened to us about independent state legislature theory, because Congress can mean two different things. It can mean a lawmaker, and that involves the president. And sometimes the Constitution says Congress may by law do blah, 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 blah. And sometimes it basically means just the House and Senate. Our ISL audience knows that sometimes state legislature means House, Senate in a bicameral state um, and the governor, even though sometimes in ordinary language, we'd say, of course, the governor is not, you know, the legislature. The government is governor is some different entity. So here, Congress by in the, in the 14th Amendment, Congress by law can do certain things and, and have certain um, enforcement legislation. But in terms of relieving the disability, that's just two thirds of each house. And the president has no role whatsoever. And that wasn't a bug. That was a feature because the Congress that passed that proposed this amendment by two thirds of the House and two thirds of the Senate is a Congress that doesn't much like Andrew Johnson and doesn't want him to have a particular role. So it's not a surprise that this is amendment by Congress for Congress and Congress is, is mentioned a whole bunch of times. And it does modify the ordinary intuitions that some people might have about pardons for example, which are presidential. So, but, but this is a really interesting example, Andy, of how the same word, sometimes the word Congress means House, Senate, and President, and sometimes, oh, it just means House and Senate. But on Section 5, presumably it means with presentment and when Congress is trying to pass a law enforcing um, some of the provisions of the 14th Amendment. Right. Right. I, I will say, uh, you know, 
Article 1, Section 7, Clause 3, the Orders, Resolutions, and Votes Clause, says that other uh, resolutions that have to be passed by both houses of Congress also have to be presented to the president, but it's a little ambiguous which ones, and of course, constitutional amendments are another classic example, so it's not given to the president. Congress does that itself. For, for reasons I don't understand, uh, when Congress did pass these two general amnesty bills, 1872 and 1898, According to the historical records, the presidents did sign them. President Grant signed the one in 1872. McKinley signed the one in 1898. I can't tell if that's because they were sort of treating it more as ordinary law or just as an abundance of caution. You know, Lincoln signed the 13th Amendment, even though there was no need to under Hollingsworth versus Virginia. It was clear he didn't have to. But, you know, those are the days when you just didn't mess around. The, the 13th Amendment passed by two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate was sent to Lincoln. He immediately signed. He was very proud to have his name on it. This was very much connected to the Republican platform of 1864 that said, if you elect us, we're going to get rid of slavery. In 1860, they didn't say that at all. It was um, the Republican platform. Is, if you elect us, read our lips, no new slavery. We're going to stop slavery in the West. That's very different than 1864. We're going to get rid of slavery over every inch of American soil. That's what was promised in 1864. So Lincoln is, he's very proud to sign it. But Lyman Trumbull and others afterward have a, a, a resolution saying it was a mistake to have sent it to the president. It sets no precedent in the future. We actually goofed. And going forward, we do not believe that we, after passing an amendment by two thirds of the House and two thirds of the Senate, have to mm. send it to the president. Now, ordinarily, it might not matter. You might say because these are veto proof majorities. But you can imagine something passes at the very end of a session. If you allow the president 10 days proof that Congress is is no longer in session. You could imagine people changing their mind, people getting sick, COVID, all sorts of things. So Will is right. There's a case called Hollingsworth versus Virginia. Early on stands for the proposition that amendments don't need to be presented to the present. There are different theories about why that might be so. One is because it would be unnecessary given two thirds. I've never quite bought that. The best argument, I think, and Mike Paulson has written the definitive article about <laughs> constitutional amendments, a total general theory of Article 5 in the Yale Law Journal. And I'm not sure he talks about this. Maybe he did. I'm forgetting. <clears throat> but my theory is since amendments can originate in constitutional conventions as well as in congressional proposals and constitutional conventions aren't sent to the president for his signature by symmetry, so too with amendments that are initiated by Congress. But truthfully, what really moves me most is the practice, the precedent. And we're going to be talking about that in the context with 14th Amendment, Section 3, and more generally, what moves me the most is that the first Congress did not submit um, what we call the Bill of Rights, initially 12 amendments, did not submit that to George Washington for his um, signature or veto. And given that they didn't do that, and, uh, and that was very soon after the Constitution, including lots and lots of folks were involved in the Constitution, including Washington himself, who didn't you know, make an issue of it. And that's partly driving, truth be told, I think, um, a lot of people's intuitions about Hollingsworth. I just don't want to become lost. Will's core answer is that you don't need implementing legislation for Section 3 to have force. And this wasn't purporting to be implementing legislation under the Section 5 power. It was passed uh, four years before the 14th Amendment was proposed. It is an example of what types of things 
Congress considered to be insurrection, rebellion, or engaging in. But uh, with all due respect to my learned friend, Professor McConnell, you know, these are two very serious errors. One, to think that a statute could limit the meaning of the Constitution. That's error. That's that's supremacy clause 101 mistake. And then to think that this statute does it when, in fact, historically, that was demonstrably not the case is, I think, another very serious error. So I, I think those are two truly, truly bad arguments against our thesis. Andy, one final thing, because our audience has heard in previous episodes, we have now nearly three years worth of episodes about the exclusionary rule and the Fourth Amendment and how you enforce it and the need for civil damages, especially if you're innocent, because the exclusionary rule does nothing at all. We've talked about a case called Bivens in which actually there was a time when you could just sue directly under the 14th Amendment federal officers. Well, if Bivens is right, I'm actually a Bivens person. I think you could have sued directly under the Fourth and 14th Amendments. You could have sued state officers courts could have inferred a kind of civil cause of action directly. So if that's true, you didn't need a statute called Section 1983 for civil remedies. There is such a statute, but you didn't need it. In my view, um, courts could have actually self-executingly provided some civil remedies. They, They haven't in general. They can't when it comes to criminal law enforcement for reasons that we've talked about. But Mike Paulson and Will Bode and I, Steve Calabrese and others, call ourselves departmentalists to a a great extent because we think Constitution isn't just about what courts do, but it's also not just about what Congress does. You know, all the branches are allowed to play a role and not just of the federal government. They think state election officials have important responsibilities under state law and under Section 3 and the combination thereof. Akil, I don't really understand the point you were making there and how it relates to what was being said before. Um, So you're talking about about another example of something that's self-executing. Is that what you mean? I'm saying the 14th, I'm agreeing with Will that actually, and against our friend, Professor McConnell, that you always need something from Congress. You don't always need that, even though Congress has enforcement power, you don't need Congress. And I'm saying that's actually even true, I think, of of civil remedies. Congress has passed a statute called Section 1983 to enforce Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, but I'm not sure you actually fully needed that. I see. So you're saying that that you could have... Have remedies available as a citizen without Congress passing a statute to create those remedies. That's that's my position. Again, um, the court hasn't said that, but except in a case called Bivens, they actually created uh, inferred remedies against federal officials who were searching and seizing unreasonably under the Fourth Amendment. I'm saying, why couldn't you have done that under the Fourth and Fourteenth, even without 1983? Okay, so in In that case, just to clarify. It's not the court that's creating it. The court is, is saying that it's, it's there and we're just recognizing that it's there. Courts have all sorts of remedial powers. And Will has written about some of this and it's connected to some of Will's meditations on immunity issues. And, and in some ways, just to, to circle back, the, Section 3 might present an even easier case because even n- nobody disputes that states, for example, can enact legislation that would enforce other constitutional rights. You know, that if Colorado wants to say when your free exercise rights are violated, here's a civil remedy for it. We, we you know, we want to adopt a kind of state level of Section 1983. Nobody disputes Colorado can do that. 
if they can do that, if Colorado can recognize your free speech rights, why can Congress not also Colorado not also recognize Section three? Why cannot the Secretary of State of Colorado or the Colorado legislature enact legislation saying just as we take seriously our obligations of the Bill of Rights, we also take seriously uh, Section three? And what our audience needs to understand, because we're getting lots of people who may not be law trained, is, again, we're not results oriented. We're trying to test our intuitions here against all sorts of other hypotheticals, cases, controversies. How do we do it when it doesn't involve Donald Trump, when it doesn't involve Section 3, when, for example, Will says it involves other parts of the 14th Amendment or the 13th Amendment or you know other constitutional actors? This is how constitutional thinkers kind of test their intuitions about certain things. Okay, well, so actually this brings me into what, what I want to talk about next. We've agreed that Section 3 is self-executing, but it's not really self-enforcing, right? But then in order for it to be enforced, we're seeing now that there may be several ways for that to happen. So in several states, we're seeing you know, in the news that people are talking about filing lawsuits. I believe there have been some lawsuits filed, Um Secretaries of State have said, well, this is something I'm going to have to look at, you know, when the time comes or something like that. And then other people are reacting Mm -hmm. to that. So how do you foresee this, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of unwinding? Or what would you like to see happen? Uh, What what would you say would be the most appropriate uh, way that the actors that currently exist should behave under the Constitution? Wow, uh, that's a bale full of questions, Andy. Um, and it, it really is very interesting, the reactions we've gotten. People have been writing us. People have been formulating opinion pieces on election law blog. There's been a lot of discussion of how, assuming that Trump is disqualified, this would actually come to be enforced and applied. In the article, we avoid detailed discussion of that issue and just give some general illustrations. Our general point is where a state official, like a state election official or state election board or a state secretary of state, has authority under state law to make determinations as to candidate eligibility, then that official or body would have the same authority to make a determination as to eligibility under Section three's prohibition as they do for any other thing, right? If a 25-year-old sought to be included in the ballot for president of the United States or if Barack Obama uh, sought to be included and he's disqualified by the 22nd Amendment, what would a state official do, right? What is the state law and state procedure? And what, at least it's been kind of new to me, I've been starting to learn from what people have been sending me is that this various states have various laws and various provisions and arrangements for that. Um, I've had a few uh, friends in Minnesota point out to me the Minnesota statutes, and it's an interesting arrangement. It is not clear in the Minnesota statutes exactly what authority the Secretary of State has to exclude someone from the ballot. But there is a statute that says, If somebody has been included in the ballot who is constitutionally ineligible, right, that's our hypothesized situation, anybody, and it really looks like it's anybody, the language doesn't even appear to restrict it to Minnesotans, can file a errors and omissions petition with the Minnesota Supreme Court 
challenging the Secretary of State's inclusion of the person on the ballot who is constitutionally ineligible. And it actually goes straight to the Minnesota Supreme Court. It's very interesting and unusual procedure. I don't know the details of it, um, but that's one example where the actual case, if there were to be a case, comes up in a state court challenge to what a secretary of state has done or failed to do. Something I believe I said in some local interview was that whatever the state officials do, they're likely to be challenged in court by one side or the other, right? There are restrictions as to when a case could properly be brought in the first instance in federal court, has to be brought by someone with standing who has a concrete and particularized injury, has to be ripe and everything like that. But many state court procedures are more generous. And I think that you will see or very well could see many of these issues start to appear in state courts in a variety of circumstances. Now, Will mentioned earlier Colorado, and somebody told me that Colorado actually does give directly the Secretary of State the authority to make ballot determinations. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm sure there are some states where the state Secretary of State has explicit authority. And our argument would be, if you have authority to keep a 25-year-old off the ballot, if you have authority to keep Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Arnold Schwarzenegger off the ballot, uh, you would have authority to apply the same decision-making criteria and tools and procedures you otherwise would be applying in those circumstances to make a determination as to whether Trump is disqualified by Section 3. Just to give one more concrete example, uh, huh. Georgia. Uh, so Georgia has gone through this recently in the context of Section 3 uh, in some proceedings to possibly disqualify Marjorie Taylor Greene on the argument that she had given aid and comfort to the insurrection of January 6th. Uh, and so we we even have a little bit more concrete sense. So Georgia has a basically a state you know administrative law judge, a state hearing officer, uh, who called uh, Representative Green in, and she testified you know for several hours uh, about you know her behavior and what she said and what she meant in this interview and what you know what she was trying to say. And then you know the court made a series of findings of fact that said basically, if January sixth was an insurrection, uh, we still think that she did not engage in it. Um, and in her case, also, it was important that she had not taken the oath of office until uh, two days before January 6th, because she was a, you know, that was her first, you know, political career. So there was a bunch of earlier stuff she'd said. The court said, well, that's jurisdictionally out of bounds. It's the only things after she takes the oath. And in this two-day period, you know, I'm not convinced. And that's appealed uh, to the Secretary of State, uh, Brad Raffensperger, people may have heard of, who affirmed the decision. And so she got to see on the ballot. But it's pretty clear, and I think somebody in the Georgia Secretary of State's office has said this, that... That would be the procedure for other Section 3 challenges. So if somebody wants to challenge Donald Trump's inclusion on the Georgia ballot, presumably he's going to go in and sit down for a deposition about what he meant when he said, be there, be wild, and why he didn't send in uh, the National Guard sooner and so on. In Minnesota, it might even be the case that the registrar, uh, the Secretary of State herself, could put a name on the ballot and file something with uh, the state Supreme Court saying, hey, have I got this right? Or have her assistant do that immediately because you actually, you know, you want it decided immediately. Am I getting this right? So even if 
she thought, I don't actually have the authority to to exclude a name. So I have to include it, but I immediately want to get guidance on this. So might even be that she's the one who could initiate the proceeding in the Minnesota Supreme Court. She could definitely ask her assistant to do so. I think that's an interesting possibility, Akil. And there are a variety of similar circumstances, depending on state law, where a state official could file a state court action for a declaratory judgment as to what his or her responsibilities are. I don't know the answer whether the Minnesota Secretary of State could file an errors or omissions petition challenging himself. And, and it is a himself. I, I know the Minnesota Secretary of State. He's okay. actually okay. Okay. a former law student of mine from like my second or third year of teaching at University of Minnesota Law School. He, he's a good guy. But I think the sense I have of the overwhelming number of state secretaries of state is they're straight shooters who want to do the right thing. They are, you know, sometimes they're elected on political party affiliations, but they're not political in the sense of being highly partisan charged. They're trying to get this state voting laws right and eligibility determinations. And they're just trying to make sure votes get counted rigorously. I could imagine a situation where a state secretary of state says, I'm not sure exactly what my responsibility is here and submits it to the state's Supreme Court or a state trial court for initial determination, laying out his factual basis for his presumptive conclusions and asking for some guidance. Or even in theory, Mike, declaratory judgment action in a federal district court, because this does involve the meaning of 14th Amendment, Section 3, under analogy to cases like the Asarco case and other cases. I know that was the Supreme Court under uh, certain theories that officers have interests in making sure that they are getting the law right. Will said, okay, Congress has enforcement power, but maybe not unique, um, exclusive enforcement power, even if state Supreme Court might have jurisdiction in certain contexts, and you can go to their that state Supreme Court directly. Interesting possibilities about going to other courts, other you know, federal courts, because these are issues of uh, federal law. All three of us this uh, semester or this year, academic year, teaching federal courts or federal jurisdiction, all these principles of justiciability, when a case arises under federal law, when the party is standing. I actually wrote up an exam question last year on a Section 3 issue, imagining all sorts of situations where somebody brought an action and asking my students whether there was standing, what sort of legal interests count, what sort of interest would make it a federal case. And when I wrote up the test, I didn't have, this is how you beat chatbots, law professors. I didn't have a preferred answer in mind. I didn't know exactly what I thought the correct answer would be. I was just looking for quality of analysis. And I'm I'm still uncertain whether, in fact, I'd love to pick your brains on this, Akil. Do you think a voter who wishes to have someone kept off the state ballot could bring a suit in federal court asserting their federal constitutional interest in not having a disqualified person? I think that's a really tough question. I think the there is a district court in Florida that just uh, dismissed a case on that ground. 
Yeah. I myself, you know, I, I'm a broad standing person. The court is moving hard against me. Oh, my gosh. I just got Will three days ago, the supplements to the Hart and Wexler with your name on it, because I've been waiting for the supplement. And last time we spoke, I think I told you offline, my supplement hasn't come yet, but it is come. <laughs> so I, I bet Will has some thoughts. My own view, Mike, has always been very pro-standing, um, and the court is actually restricting standing in all sorts of ways. Um, some of this actually involves, it's not unconnected to Kim Davis way back when, who as an officer didn't want to ad- administer same-sex marriage. She was in Kentucky and tried to have standing of a certain sort as an officer. But Will has looked at these cases much more recently because they're they're at the heart of his supplement to the new edition. And for what it's worth, uh, and sorry to keep nerding out for everybody, but I I think the answer probably is no, be my view, if if a voter tried to go into federal court in the first instance, in part because, as we've talked about, there are so many different ways a state can resolve this and a state might well be allowed to say, look, in, in this state, you know, we allow you to put your dog on the ballot if you want to. Um, and we sort that out later, you know, at some other stage. But well, kind of on rightness grounds. You right. know. But but the state. Yeah. But the states have their own procedures. And I certainly think once those procedures are triggered, those sometimes give rights that can then be challenged in federal court. So if the state has its own procedures for ballot challenges and somebody's kept off the ballot and thinks that's unconstitutional, or somebody thinks the state has not followed its own procedures, you know, there, there are a range of kinds of challenges. But I agree with Mike, these are, these are not well settled under current doctrine either. So there's a whole range of, of complicated, you know, abstention, ripeness. Yes. Uh, Burford, Alabama Power, uh, some of these other ones. But it's, connect, it's complicated because these are also federal questions and not pure issues of state law. So if you have to say it in a way that the audience could understand it, no one is going <laughs> to understand me, what you just said. That, that's what we try to do is explain this to second and third year law students. I think the audience would understand this, that there are a bunch of procedural hurdles that would complicate an initial suit directly in federal court by anybody who's not specifically aggrieved by some action under state law that already has occurred. The more likely way that these cases will succeed in producing a judicial text test is going through a state court system where when the state court resolves the federal constitutional issues and hopefully agrees with the Bode Paulson interpretation of Section 3, the state court's resolution of a federal issue becomes reviewable by the U.S. Supreme Court as a federal law issue uh, essential to the judgment of the state court below. So if, if I were to predict the course that would lead this to eventually get to the Supreme Court, I'd say that the, the, the more likely road is through its state court system and in some fashion before it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. For those of you who are lawyers and judges and admitted to the bar in any state, you probably know by now that this episode is accredited for continuing legal education directly in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania, and by reciprocity elsewhere by going to podcast.njsba.com and entering the code I'm about to announce. The code for this episode is DEBATE. That's not case-sensitive, DEBATE. Thanks again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering on this. Okay, so a few things. Um, You know, you've been talking about standing to bring the case in federal court, but I think 
what uh, in the first instance, but I think that um, you know the earlier discussion made it clear that there are all sorts of ways that it can get into state court, um, and that the it's not that you're not gonna that no one is gonna have access to the state courts, and there's going to be you know plenty of actors that want access to the state courts that will have standing um, in most states and probably every state to. To, to do that so that although it's true it'll take longer you know you're not going to necessarily get right to the supreme court but but um but it'll get there um one way or the but, other but andy i was saying one other thing because you can't control litigants and there are lots of them especially if voters want to get into the action or opposing candidates and people have been known i know some people are going to be shocked shocked there's gambling in casablanca <laughs> to forum shop they're going to want to try to see you know who's uh, likely in this states to to be more on my side and i can imagine that even though i think mike for all sorts of technical reasons is right it's there there are fewer technical hurdles and complexities if you go the state court route and especially in a state like minnesota we can go straight to the top of the state court ladder to the state supreme court there are going to be litigants i suspect who might prefer for various reasons to try to get it before a federal district judge. And then Will correctly said there are all sorts of reasons a federal court might hesitate. He used a word, it's a technical word. He and I both know what it means, but Andy, you're right. We need to explain to our audience. Um, there are all sorts of reasons a federal court might abstain, might stay its hand, you know, and I just wanted my students, because they're listening to this, to know that on the exam, they're going to be responsible for Burford, Pullman, Alabama Power, and, you know, other um, of these abstentions, um, ripeness, finality, all of these issues are actually um, implicated, arguably, in this situation. Oh, I, we could talk even about the Purcell principle, but but we won't. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, and then my other comments are that you know, Mike mentioned the secretaries of state and how most of them are, you know, upstanding and and uh, you know faithful uh, public servants. But uh, two words there would be Catherine Harris. Um, so you know, my, I, I don't disagree with you though, uh, Mike, in general, because and actually, this is something we talked about on our podcast in the Moore versus Harper context. Uh, and earlier as well, um, you know, we might have our problems with the Electoral College um, in various ways, but one thing that the system that we have does is it creates a decentralized, um, you know, voting system, and you wind up having to face your neighbors in the coffee shop, you know, that that are the local election officials, and there's a certain integrity there. And on the other hand, if we go back to the last election, if we, we had a federalized system, and, you know, President Donald Trump is the head of the executive branch, is in charge of the election system. I'm not sure that would be a better system for election mm. integrity, notwithstanding the, you know, problems that the Electoral College has. So this is related to that point, that uh, that electoral officials are, can have a certain professionalism about them, which, which helps uh, democracy. That, so that's the second point. The th- third point, um, you know, you've been talking about how it seems like, yes, we might have... Even maybe even uh, I mean, in some states the secretary of state is elected, but in others not. So you know, the, you may have an appointed official or some minor, so-called minor official, making these major determinations. And I think that Professor McConnell was railing against that. But you're saying it seems to me that no matter what happens, it's going to wind up in court, and then you're going to go up the ladder. And w- and what is that? That's due process. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, talking- there, there's no way that a mm-hmm. decision like this by a state official doesn't get contested and doesn't become uh, resolved by a court. So I think that's another answer to his his complaint about the fact that, you know, Congress set up a, a system of where there's due process at every level and at every step. But I think there's, you know, there's no lack of due process here. Um, and uh, and then finally, this would take us on to, I think, the next point here. What we're talking about here is, okay, how does this get, you know, enforced or, you know, how does this self-executing uh provision get enforced and we're talking about it kind of at the entry level what's the first thing that's going to happen how are you going to get that into court i'm also interested in what the last thing that's going to happen is okay what you know how does it get resolved ultimately who is the ultimate arbiter of of who should be on the ballot is it the supreme court or is it congress what do you think I think it's actually it's a mistake to even say there's only one ultimate arbiter of the meaning of the Constitution. I mean, the Supreme Court obviously is the ultimate arbiter of any case or controversy that comes before the Supreme Court. And I think in practice, everybody looks at the Supreme Court's ruling on questions like that. But, you know, the the Supreme Court, because it only resolves cases and controversies, it might well resolve one question while leaving other questions to Congress. Just for instance, uh, you know, if these things come from state proceedings where the states have had taken evidence and had hearings, you know, the Supreme Court might say, well, on the basis of the evidence before the Georgia Secretary of State, they did not violate the Constitution by concluding that, you know, so-and-so engaged in insurrection. And then that might still leave slightly different questions for other states that, that do things differently. Um, I do also think, uh, we talked about this briefly before, you know, what is Congress's role in the counting of the electoral votes? is also a very important question that certainly needs another article. There have been several articles written about it, especially because the law has just changed. Um, Congress reformed the Electoral Count Act after the events of January 6th um, in important, generally healthy ways, but that we have to go through very carefully to figure out, you know, what all exactly can happen there and what room there is for last minute shenanigans. Uh, let me just add one thing that I hope this doesn't take us on a detour. But questions of congressional disqualification, disqualification of congressional members often will end up before the respective houses of Congress, pursuant to Congress's power to judge the elections, qualifications and returns of its members when somebody applies to be seated in the particular house if they have engaged in insurrection or rebellion, but somehow made it through the state election process, Congress would have the power And we would say the duty to exclude someone who's constitutionally disqualified. In addition, each House of Congress has the power to expel a member. Uh, That takes a two-thirds vote of each House. Certainly, if you conclude that a member of your House of Representatives or Senate engaged in conduct that was the, that constituted engaging in insurrection or rebellion, uh, that would be another way it would be enforced. But I want to, Return to what Will's first instinct was, is that if there is actually a judicial case or controversy and it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court rules as to the meaning of Section 3 and upholds a determination that, for example, President Trump is disqualified on grounds of having engaged in insurrection or uh, uh, rebellion, I think that settles it. 
I think even though it comes in the context of one specific state's election laws, if what is resolved is the federal constitutional question of Trump's eligibility, the Supreme Court's determination will obviously have the effect of settling that issue throughout the nation. And, you know, that's that's the route I perhaps overconfidently last week predicted that the case would actually come and be decided by the Supreme Court. Mike said that. And last week, I wanted our guests to have their say. I bit my lip a bit, a, bit, a little bit, bit my tongue. I think that's not right. I'm going to flip it around, flip the facts around. And Mike said he couldn't imagine that just as a practical matter that the Supreme Court, in a word, wouldn't be sort of final politically and 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 practically. I can imagine this. Um, I'm going to flip the facts around a little bit. My academic authority for this will be of the highest sort. It will be Mike Paulson um, in <laughs> an article that he wrote called "The Merriman Power," um, mm. and, it, and it put him at odds with Will Bode. Mm. I do think conclusively rebutted Mike on so-called Merriman power in an article that he wrote on the judgment power. See, I'm driving a wedge between (laughs) my friends, Will and and Mike here on this very issue. But that was nerding out. Let me take a step back. Okay, here's my hypothetical. Just this is what law professors do for exams. The Supreme Court in one of the states actually says it's not an insurrection. He didn't engage in it and or he didn't give aid and comfort. So he's totally eligible. And presumably it comes up in one of the 50 states. But that's a determination whose logic, not just what we call race judicata, but sorry, decisis. And we could even use fancy words about non-mutuality of offensive collateral stop. We could do all sorts of fancy law talk, but whose logic really says he, he's eligible everywhere. He's on the ballot everywhere. Because, to repeat, in this hypothetical, they say definitively, we've looked at the tape. It's not an insurrection, or he didn't engage in it, or it's not aid and comfort. And, and they're looking at the totality of all the evidence, and the evidence doesn't change. Let's even stipulate that. Now, my view, let's, and, he, and he actually seems to have the most electoral votes on election day. And even the major networks proclaim him the president-elect. But for some reason, the House and the Senate on January 6th are controlled by Democrats. And now actually they've got the Democrats do Chuck Schumer, um, the Nancy Pelosi equivalent in the House. Yes, they control the Senate. And, and they even, for now, control the presidency with Joe Biden. So if they have to, they can pass a statute and, and do filibuster um, a reform in an instant. And they're going to say, quoting Brother Paulson and Boat, we have an oath to the Constitution. We disagree. We think he's disqualified. And actually, we are the judges, not the vice president, you know, not the Mike Pence equivalent, not Kamala Harris. That would be, I think, ridiculous. But we are the judges. So either we're going to say these electoral votes don't count at all. And they're not even validly. These aren't even validly appointed electors and they are excluded from the denominator as well as the numerator. And Biden Harris have a majority or we're going to count 
um, them as blank. So they're part of the denominator. So no one has a technical majority because we're, we're not counting for Trump. We're counting them as zero, but they're part of the denominator in some way. But under the Electoral uh, College Reform Act, which we'll just um, um, mention all the rest, we're going to actually now decide and we're going to decide for Biden. Now, my claim is legally, actually, they have a leg to stand on. And they're actually following, you know, the Supreme Court is not supreme over them. Final point, there might be rioting. There might be blood in the streets. Oh, my God. But I would take the position that those, the rioters were the, you know, the insurrectionists. They pulled a fast one. This sounds like, you know, what um, uh, Jeffrey Clark said. Oh, that's why we have the Insurrection Act or something. But from a juridical point of view, my, my position is Congress is actually the, not the vice president, the Supreme Court here. The text, I think, gives it to the Congress implicitly and structurally. I think their decision maker, as a matter of precedent, I would say in 1800, 1801, Congress decided between Burr and Adams and Jefferson. And in 1824, 25, Congress did it in eight, uh, between Jackson and, and John Quincy Adams and, and others, a guy named Crawford, I think. In 1876, 77, between um, uh, Hayes and Tilden, Congress decided, not the court. Congress is the relevant decision maker, I would say, as a matter of text, history and structure and wouldn't be bound by the Supreme Court. And they could cite you guys saying (laughs) it's our oath, it's our Hmm. obligation, and he's not eligible. Akil, Andy, there's a lot there in what Akil just said. Let, Let me try and make a couple of points and Will can correct or amplify We don't address this at length, but I think the core of our position is that whoever has constitutional power to apply Section 3, that it's within their powers, has a good faith duty to do that. We actually think that Congress's, I'm going to say, role, not power, in counting the votes is a purely ministerial supervising counting and tabulating function. We do not see Congress's or the vice president's duty or function of opening up the sealed votes and saying what they were as involving any substantive power to review the constitutionality of the votes. You know, that's that's basically the same argument that was used in 2021 people were saying we're going to throw out these votes and throw out these votes i, I actually disagree with you akil that congress's power to count the votes is a substantive power mm-hmm. and you um, could take that position but remember will said and it's just one word and we're nerding out here but will will elaborate Greeley. Now, Will can tell you, actually, Ah. Greeley. Ah, ah, ah. As if actually, you know, some of us have written about this. So, Will, tell us about Greeley. Okay, good. Uh, So, yeah, first I just want to say, notice that Akil Amar is a more hardcore departmentalist than Mike Paulson uh, on this podcast. This is is amazing. Yes. Um, He cited Paulson. I'm hopeful we can all... uh, come to the judgment power compromise one day uh yeah th- this this oh, is i really agree compl- with you about the judgment power in general yeah th- this know, is think, really complicated right. and it implicates several things that we that we take a little bit of a position on that really would require another article i i'm somewhere in between you two um 
I think textually, there's nothing in the 12th Amendment that gives Congress a judging power. It doesn't have the words judge the way Article 1, Section 5 does. Right. It's all, and now it's all in this sort of mysterious passive voice. They shall all gather and the votes shall be counted. Counted by whom? So that, that I, I start out with more skepticism about Congress's substantive judging power. That said, you know, 150 years of practice of the Electoral Count Act and now the Electoral Count Reform Act seem to give Congress at least a little bit of power here, not the vice president. Like we can all agree the vice president doesn't have the power. Congress has given itself the power. And there is a reading of the necessary and proper clause under which that's plausible. Now, there's very good scholarship uh, by Vasan Kasavan suggesting that still exceeds Congress's powers, that Congress can't give itself the counting power. The 12th Amendment doesn't give it. I think that's hard. There's also a great article by John Harrison called Nobody for President. <laughs> arresting suggestion that actually nobody is in charge of this issue. Uh, it's a version of the departmentalist point, even a little stronger. That just nobody's given nobody's given the power over this uh, because it's too dangerous of a power to trust to anybody. And so we just got to figure it out. Um, and that's kind of one way to see these these compromises. Now, the, the, just then, then Horace Hor, then uh, Greeley. So uh, Horace Greeley died after um, the presidential election. And so there are a bunch of electoral votes kind of in the bag for him. Most of the voters, most of the electors, you know, cast their votes for somebody else, uh, which is probably the healthy way to resolve this, this problem. Uh, but some didn't. And so Congress had to split over whether to count his electoral votes. And they decided not to. They decided his votes were not what are called regularly given on the grounds that he's disqualified. Uh, but that was very controversial. Uh, the the House and Senate split like close to 50-50 on this issue. I have not read the debates, and one thing I would want to do before taking a view of which of you is right is to actually go through and read the debates and see who had the better argument. Because this is not just about setting a precedent. It's not just about what happened to Horace Greeley, but why did it happen? And what's the best view of the way to understand why it happened? Um, the other thing is that since then, we've enacted the, 20, the 20th Amendment, uh, which specifically contains this language about how uh, the president, if the president shall fail to qualify, the vice president becomes president. And so there's a good argument, I think this is made by Derek Muller, that pre-20th Amendment, Congress might have decided not to count invalid votes because it was too risky to count them. Because then, you know, you count them, the person's going to come president. Now that it's very clear that you can get the most electoral votes and not be qualified, there's like another stage where we say, no, 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 you're not qualified. I think it might make more sense to err on the side of counting them and then not letting that person take office. But it still returns us to the question of who would be in charge of stopping them, right? Right. And my answer would be structural and not textual. And by the way, I've testified before the Congress on this issue, um, talking about really, I actually think they should have counted the votes for the dead guy um, because that would mean in effect, on election on inauguration day, the, the, the dead guy's running mate would 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 take over. They didn't think about it very carefully, Will, because nothing turned on it practically. Because Grant won, and when we talk a little bit more about some of the history that you're gonna that, that's in your article, one question is on the lower bound of insurrection: Are they how? Carefully, are they thinking about it, given the Civil War clears even an upper bound? You said something very thoughtful last week. Yeah, but they're worried about future possible uprisings of a of a guerrilla warfare clan sort. And I thought that was a very good point you make. But but they weren't 
really thinking very carefully about it. I took the position in my testimony that even though they had the power, they should have actually counted the, the vote. That would be more sensible going forward. But my view structurally, and it's so interesting that our, my friend John Harrison would take the other position because he's, I think, he sometimes revels in textual purity and perversity, it is inadmissible for there to be no one for president. That's actually um, long live the king. The king is dead. Long live the king. That's that's a, a structural imperative. The presidency never sleeps. There has to be one. Now, who that is, that's a tricky question. You know, who's the real pope? Is it the Avignon pope? Is it the Rome pope? But my view is not just narrowly textual and not just based on the actual precedence, but a structural argument that the most legitimate body in America is not William Rehnquist and eight others in Bush versus Gore. It's not. And I hated the fact that Bush versus Gore jumped in, and I always have hated that. My view is structurally, it's Congress that's first among equals. And Andy here, Congress means not including the president. This is the House and Senate as, yes, it doesn't use the word judge. This is by analogy to Article 1, Section 5, each house is the judge of the elections and returns and qualifications of its own members. But the two houses together and how they operate is a nice question. You know, as one group, you know, bicamerally, what happens if they can't quite agree? All these complexities here you see about how Cong what Congress actually means. And that's why I disagree with Voss and Kesevan. I think you need a statute here. But my view is structurally the legitimacy conferring body ultimately is the Congress in some shape perform exactly how it operates is a little tricky it's the ultimate impeaching body it's the ultimate counting body it's the ultimate judge of these nice questions of especially presidential eligibility it's, it's fundamentally by not by textual provision but by structural analogy to the sensible role congress plays in all the other peripheral adjunct pendant jurisdiction sort of aspects of presidential selection and removal and ousting. Yeah. So can I just ask how the obvious lawyerly question, you know, the, the bite the bullet question, suppose the Democrats, you know, you've got your hypo about the Democrats and, and all that, just the same hypo. And suppose while the Democrats are there and they're saying, okay, we're going to keep, keep Trump off the ballot. And they say, and, and, you know, and we've heard Professor Marr, we're apparently the ultimate unreviewable judge of who is president. So in fact, We've found the perfect president, the perfect Democratic president. It's Barack Obama for his third term. And we have some argument that, you know, structurally, implicitly, it's fair for him to get a third term in light of the ways that, you know, whatever. They, they have some argument. If they do that, if they announce that Barack Obama's president, is your view that nobody can say anything about that for four well, years? That's I, just I think it's, it's utterly outrageous, not just because he's ineligible, um, under subsequent amendments, but because their only role is to pick among the people who actually got electoral votes, and that wouldn't be Obama, that would be presumably Biden. Mike said it correctly last time, quoting Joseph Story, whose commentaries on the Constitution actually Vic and I are doing the next edition of. And Story says, in the nature of having the umpire, last word, someone's going to be able to you know, make mistakes. So I am assuming, Will, in all of this, that there are genuine good faith issues. Are you really 24 or 26? Are you a citizen or not? When people start acting in such consummate bad faith, 
Now we're talking, you know, about civil war and revolution lands. So my law professor hypotheticals tend to presume always there are good faith questions and who's the good faith judge, because we could imagine the Supreme Court pulling some sort of shits too, just like this. Whoever has the last word could, you know, pull a fast one. But my view is the ultimate judge structurally for reasons of legitimacy here is the Congress. They're the ones that have the most legitimacy, but I'm presuming everyone acting in good faith, because if they're not, then all hell breaks loose. Well, you know, if you need an institution to act in good faith, you would prefer one that didn't have, uh, you know, self-interest, uh, you know, it, uh, as, as the judge. And one could argue that the court is, is more disinterested than the uh, the Congress, you know, you could also argue that the that the, the Congress themselves are disqualified under a Section Three for such outrageous behavior. You know, I was asking you about this the other day, Akil, about to what extent is truth embodied in the Constitution, you know, as an obligation, and when you when you say do things that are outrageously false, like to say that someone had this to say, well, Obama really hasn't served two terms you know, or something like that. And therefore he's, he's eligible, you know, right. that, that, that is you know, being well, an enemy here's of the what Constitution. Will said in his first answer to his mentor, his friend, his co-author of the person for whom he clerked, Mike McConnell, Mike Paulson said this also is to actually interpret the constitution that we have and the constant and will made a great point last week. Cause I said, well, you know, a presidential eligibility, you know, do you really want to disqualify presidents? And he actually made a spectacular point. He said, actually, the qualifications are higher for the presidency. It's 35 and not 30 and not 25. And he has to have longer um, residence and, and presidents can do much more dangerous things. That was a brilliant, I was very proud of him at that moment because that was the perfect A plus answer. Okay. Um, and so now I'm saying, I look at the Constitution itself and its structure has a democratic pyramid in which political officials pick judges and judges aren't supposed to pick political officials. And it's articles one, two and three in that order. And Andy, we've already taped an episode where I said Congress, of course, has power to pass legal ethics laws for all courts, including the Supreme Court, with the greatest of respect to my friend Sam Alito. This is actually the text and the structure of the Necessary and Proper Clause. So in my democratic pyramid, which is confirmed, I believe, by actual practice, precedents in 1800-01, and 1876-77, it's actually Congress that is the legitimating body when it comes to, in effect, crowning the next president. In Europe, Napoleon actually wants the Pope there. He wants all the the, the window dressing uh, and the trappings of religious authority. And so he gets the Pope involved. But at the key moment of coronation, he grabs the crown from the Pope and places it on his own head. Whereas like in the English tradition, it has to be a bishop or archbishop of the, of the Anglican church. And only that person can anoint, can apply the holy oil. And that's the second um, or third episode of the crown. Okay. But, but Napoleon wants to legitimate himself in a certain way, saying, I'm not getting it from the Pope. Therefore, he can't oust me. I'm putting it on my own head. I believe structurally. In the Constitution, it's, it's not the vice president, of course, that's absurd, but it's Congress and not the court. And Bush versus Gore would have been preposterous 
to the likes of the Marshall Court or even the Tawny Salmon P. Chase Court. Congress made these key decisions. And, and Will added one more example, which is um, uh, the Greeley precedent. Akil, putting to one side Bush versus Gore, which we can argue about, and I think we have argued about that for hours and hours and hours. Do you disagree that if the Supreme Court in a case squarely presented the issue found Trump to be constitutionally disqualified, that that would essentially settle the issue for the nation? Oh, I'm saying it may not be symmetric. Remember, I flipped it around. Oh. Um, so I was picking, and, and, and you're saying it's unthinkable, and I'm saying, oh, Mike, I wish we were in a world, you know, to me, actually, ultimately, matters, matters more that there just be a settlement to the thing, even if it's, you know, someone that I lose, because I do not like, you know, a relish the idea of civil war. But I'm saying it is imaginable, I think, given norm shattering and all the rest, if a court said he's completely eligible He's on the ballot. He actually seems to win in all these jurisdictions. He's announced by all the networks as the president-elect. I'm saying it is absolutely imaginable that the Democrats could say, we've read Paulson and Bode on the merits. We actually think he's ineligible. And we agree with Akil that we're the judges. And we think we are acting in consummate good faith here because Bode and Paulson act in consummate good faith. They're the, they're the best experts imaginable. And we think they got it right. In your hypothetical, Akil, if we got it right, why on earth did the Supreme Court get it wrong? Because my friend Mike Paulson long ago wrote stuff about how courts often get it wrong. He, you know, and courts he do get it atrocious wrong judges and underruling <laughs> and all this stuff because there are only nine of them and only five, you know, can can reach a result. And so, of course, Dred Scott, um, Plessy, Lochner, courts get it wrong all the time. But if you're a true departmentalist, then the question and we'll pose it is, whom does the Constitution crown, so to speak, as the crown maker, as as the relevant judge? And the text is not remotely clear. So I agree with our friend John Harrison, but I've given you my structural and precedential reason for believing it's not the Supreme Court. It's not this, definitely not the vice president. It's the Congress. And now the tricky question, which will also teed up is. What's the Congress? How do they act? Unicameral? I mean, bicameral? As one, you know, body with House members and 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 representatives all voting on mass, or do they have to act bicamerally? What happens when they disagree? Those are really complicated questions, it seems to me. But I actually think it's the Congress. Okay, well, let's leave this aside for the moment because it's uh, pretty pretty nasty. Um, I do like the, uh, the fact that you made the point that it may not be symmetric. And I think from when we, t- when we think about the practicalities of it, it's also there's a certain asymmetry to it. Because if, if someone were disqualified, you know, let's say the court ruled that someone can't be on the ballot, and this happened a year before the election, you know, they're not going to get a lot of votes, you know, they might get some write-ins, but they're, but you know, they're, they're you know, be unlikely that they would have a situation presented to Congress where there's any reasonable case that the person won the election. You know, you might, you know, have some questions about the legitimacy of the election, but you couldn't really say that they won the election. You know, under those circumstances, so that's a little asymmetric. Then, then the votes take place. You know, someone seems to have more of them, and then you say, well. He's not qualified, so he's out. Those are not the same situations from a legitimacy, you know, point of view. And I think that that's, 
you could say, well, the court, the court's role, it may not be the final decider in a sense, but it is an important conveyor of legitimacy. And, and a lot of this, if it doesn't come down to, in the end, faithful interpretation of the law, that's kind of what you're postulating, then um, legitimacy matters. One final thing, because this is important. New information can sometimes come to light. And this is why I, I'm flipping it around. I'm imagining that the person actually seems to win the election. After all of that, after the electors have voted, we now have proof positive of treason. Some, some new um, a video comes to light or something of treason, of being in the pay of a foreign agent, of having actually engaged in an insurrection or giving aid and comfort. You could imagine new evidence materializing. And I think the Bode-Paulson position would say, and Will is very if we have authority, then, and this is what Mike said earlier, you know, you, I, I don't, Akil doesn't get to do this. Andy doesn't get to do this. It has to be someone who is by the constitution vested with the relevant decisional authority. And that, and, and we'll put, put his fi- finger just on it. That's the nice and interesting question. Do they have actually any judicial authority at all? Here's the argument that they don't. And that will, and Mike both said by negative implication, when, their judges, like each house is the judge of the elections, qualifications, and returns of its own members. They use the word judge. That's the argument. And here they don't. That's the argument on the one side. It's textual negative implication. The argument on the other, which frankly I find more persuasive, is by structural analogy and legitimacy and all the rest, they're the, the, the biggest legitimating body in America because this is an American revolution all about the legislatures being first among equals. That's my position. We all agree it's not the vice president. That's kooky. And my friend John Harrison is saying no one at all. And I think, no, that can't be the right answer because that's just a free for all. It has to that we have to have a present. Someone has to be the decider. And I actually think in the end, it's Congress and not the court. Okay, And it's so- acting later in time and it may have more information than the court did. That's actually, you know, one of the reasons I support Congress. Well, let's move on from this nightmare. Let's take a look at why Donald Trump is disqualified from being president, um, uh, according to our guests, at this moment. Um, so why is he disqualified? I guess there are basically two questions as, as we see it. You know, One is, was there an insurrection or rebellion associated with the effort to overturn the 2020 election? And the other is, did not Donald Trump either engage in it or give aid or comfort to those who did? I think the answer to both questions are yes. There are a lot of facts, um, some of which we don't necessarily have, and there are several different paths to that uh, outcome. So I'll just you know give a couple of brief thoughts and we can talk a lot more. We think in the article, the, the most straightforward case is to say that the events of January 6th itself, the attack on the Capitol, were an insurrection a forcible attempt to oppose the authority of the government, uh, particularly the authority of the government to count the electoral votes, as we were just talking about on January 6th. Um, we think that comfortably fits within the kinds of insurrections they had leading up to the Civil War. You know, not the Civil War itself, but comfortably fits within those kinds of insurrections. Um, there is also an important argument that might be right, that the whole course of conduct, the whole effort to basically have an unlawful self-coup to keep Donald Trump in power is a rebellion in that sense, even if, if you left aside the forcible events of January 6th, 
that the whole plot is a rebellion that would have much broader implications that might be right. Um, but in some sense, that's the, that's the more ambitious case. We could, we could talk about both of those. Um, if you think about the rebellion, I think Donald Trump's engaging in it is obvious. Uh, I think it's pretty clear he was the architect of that rebellion uh, and it's, it's ringleader. If you talk about January 6th, you know, there is an argument that, well, Donald Trump didn't personally march across the barricades, right? He, he was holed up in the White House, you know, watching it unfold online. But I think his engagement or his aid and comfort has two important uh, components. One is the incitement of the of the attack, uh, his famous January sixth ellipse speech, uh, in which he he tells the crowd that they've got to you know get out there and fight like hell, or they're not going to have a country anymore. People can argue whether that speech is ambiguous or not. You know, the speech does say peacefully a couple times, so maybe maybe he'd say, "Oh, I just meant they were going to go there," and then you know yell, um, maybe. And then second, though, as regardless, once it was clear it was not peaceful. Uh, Donald Trump did not react like somebody who was surprised by that or displeased by that. Uh, and indeed, he shirked his authority to take care of the laws are faithfully executed by not calling out uh, federal law enforcement or the National Guard or anything to try to stop it. Not even not even going on Twitter to just tell people, you know, stand down um, as his aides are begging him to do uh, until several hours later. Those, those two things, the, the incitement and the dereliction of duty, uh, either independently or together, are both versions of, of either engaging in it or giving aid and comfort. That's kind of how it fits into the terms, but I'm sure we could we could quibble about all those things. Please. I think that's just terrific. Let me just amplify one aspect of the what what it, we refer to as the rebellion theory. If a military coup d'état qualifies as insurrection or rebellion, then a military coup d'état by the existing regime would similarly constitute an insurrection or rebellion. And if the show of force or the existence of force were sufficient that violence itself was not necessary, an existing regime's self-coup d'etat is a species of rebellion. And I think if you look at the overall course of conduct in the, the January 6th committee report, which we cite a number of times, establishes an overwhelming presumptive case that what Trump's overall course of conduct was, was an attempt to overthrow the results of a constitutional election. And that qualifies as a rebellion. And I think there's, there's a powerful case for that. What is a rebellion? A rebellion, I think we define as an effort to overturn or displace the lawful governing authorities by unlawful means. So wait, let me let me see if I have that right. An, an attempt to overturn the lawful government by unlawful means would be a rebellion. An insurrection carries a connotation somewhat more limited. It's more forcible resistance to the execution of the laws or the capacity of the government to execute the laws. Um, but a rebellion involves actually trying to upend the legal regime. Right. Secession would be a species of rebellion. It is not attempting to substitute the Confederacy for the entire government of the United States, but to throw off the authority of the government of the United States. And similarly, a coup d'etat that seeks to upend the system of constitutional government would qualify as a species of rebellion. Two or three things. One, Mike's big point that, of course, the existing 
incumbent administration could actually be engaged in an insurrection or rebellion. I think here's a clean example. And then the question is just, is January 6th at all like this? The president has clearly lost. He lost on election day. All the, the, the media outlets pronounced something, uh, who won. And uh, when the electors met, he lost. And when Congress met and counted the votes and certified, he lost. It's now seemingly inauguration day for his successor. And he gets up on, on television and he says, under with no claim of right, I, I, you know, I, I lost this election, but this is unacceptable to me. The person who won is an enemy of everything that I hold dear and sacred. And so I'm just simply um, holding over. With no claim of right, I've spoken with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and they're on my side. And I think that's, you know, an example of what Mike is saying. Surely we, we could imagine that. That's a law professor hypothetical. And I just I just told you what the facts were. And that would be an insurrection against the Constitution of the United States. So we that, that's right. And then the question is, is January 6th remotely like that or not? But that, that's an example. Right, Mike? Yeah, I think that's right. That's a perfect example. It okay. might be a rebellion instead of insurrection. But we can. <clears throat> when, and, and now here's a technical question. Are these insurrections against the United States or against the Constitution of the United States? That's you see, one of the things Andy was asking about. And Andy thinks it's about the Constitution. But some of your remarks might seem to just be about insurrections against the United States and not necessarily against the Constitution of the United States. We, we talked about this last week, and we have one footnote where we say there might be fine distinctions as to whether or not the, uh, the, the insurrection or rebellion is against the United States or against the Constitution of the United States in almost every circumstance in which you can imagine it. You could always conceive of the one in terms of the other. If you're seeking to overthrow the United States, that is overthrowing the Constitution of the United States. If you're thro- overthrowing the Constitution of the United States, you are overthrowing the United States as we know it. So in the end, we elide that question of true textual ambiguity um, by saying it probably doesn't make a huge difference one way or another. Well, I think there's a difference in terms of, of, you know, that there are people that would qualify under one that may not qualify under the other, rather than that there are so much that there are actions that qualify under one that don't qualify under the other. But because we talked about people that hadn't taken an oath to the Constitution, um, as opposed to people that had, and yet they all owed certain duties. So anyway, but, but I think that's, in any case, when you talk about January 6th, I think some of the key events here... Uh, have to do with the fact that a constitutional um, process is being obstructed. So either way, you know, I think I think it, it in this case it's a difference. It makes no mm-hmm. difference. I think, but but it, but in any in, in any event, uh, one question I wanted to ask you is: Do you think that that you're looking at Trump as being disqualified under this because of any one? thing any one event that occurred any one thing that he did or is it the totality of what he did i think it's the totality and as akil was describing his nightmare hypothetical where the president who's defeated just sort of says i'm holding into office anyway with minor changes that really is what happened it's not just january 6th it's the whole course of conduct if the public record that's pretty well established is to be credited 
right? And, you know, Trump would have an opportunity to explain why this is not the case. But if the public record is to be credited, you have a defeated president who sought to retain power, notwithstanding his defeat, and took steps to subvert state election processes, to subvert state elector slate submissions, to get Congress to attempt not to properly count the, the electoral votes, to get the vice president to throw out the votes. It is basically an attempt unlawfully to substitute himself as the new government for the prior government. It really is trying to overturn and overthrow the results of a constitutional election. It is very close to Akil's nightmare scenario. It, I think the, the hypothetical example is, is actually very close to the overall pattern of events that occurred. So here's where I most want to see another article because um, I clear <laughs> almost all, I, I clear, I think, all the hurdles, the big hurdles that you set up. For me, the, the, the complexities are all about January 6th. And I was going to say they're connected because if you think that the role of January 6th is more than merely ministerial counting, that actually has implications for what, you, you know, if you're trying to simply work the, the, the umpire who actually has a role, you know, um, it's not actually over. Is it actually over on election day or on electoral college meeting day or, you know, actually is it not over until January 6th? And if you think that, that, that there are all sorts of different ways of characterizing stuff that's happening in this whole period. So I totally agree with you, Akil, that. If January 6th is the judging moment, is like yes. the most important moment, then attempting to, to go in and attack the judge is the, you know, the easiest case of insurrection. That said, I think even if you think January 6th is kind of ministerial, but still constitutionally required, it might still be an insurrection akin to, you know, the old thing where you take the royal seal and throw it in the river so as to stop the government from exercising power for a while. Like imagine you had an insurrection like that where you broke in grabbed the royal seal and threw it in the river to stop the government from I agree with both of those. That would also be different if you're jawboning the ref in various ways that aren't trying to throw the seal in, but you actually are hoping that because they actually have authority, this more than ministerial, they're going to rule your way once they realize that you've got, you know, a lot of people who are riled up. So we aren't going to kill them, but are going to vote them out next time. And they have some authority. So I think, you know, if I were Donald Trump's defense lawyer, a job I will never be uh, asked to undertake, I can't imagine. That's I would say, look, I wanted to win, but I wanted to win lawfully. And so I thought that by, you know, sending uh, my people there to make clear hops that they would be, people would exercise every bit of lawful authority they had in discretion of the counting of the votes. Maybe I wasn't even exactly sure how much discretion they had because these lawyers were disagreeing and I wasn't sure. But that's what I was doing. I was just trying to make clear what the political stakes were. That's, I think, the case he would make for his ellipse speech. That's why I think the subsequent inaction is so telling. The subsequent inaction is not a course of conduct consistent with that original state of mind. But here's another thing we say in the paper that I do think is important and goes to the, the points about adjudication is, you know, this does depend on the facts. And we are not the Georgia Secretary of State or the Minnesota Secretary of State or the Illinois Secretary of State, ultimately. I mean, we do our best in the article from everything we have to give our sense of how this works. But there might be hearings. Donald Trump might testify those hearings. If he if he wants to tell the world that actually he never meant for January 6th to turn violent, he was horrified the moment that happened. That was not what he intended. And he didn't say anything because he was just so stunned at like what had become of his life 
uh, that he needed three hours to mentally recover before he could figure out how to react. He's entitled to say that and people could decide he's credible. And that that's, that's the article we take. So that in our sixth report statement, of the facts as the Prima Basi case, but you know, there, there would be another possibly competing kind of the facts. Maybe we'll get one. Maybe somebody will rule on that someday. If, if this is serious, I'm not sure. But, but from what we have, that's what I find a little unsatisfying. Brilliant. And here's my last thought, because I know we have to um, wrap up. Let's say it's even more than that. He, he says, I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't ask them to do it. I said peacefully, truthfully, when they did it, I was happy. I'm not even surprised, but my legal position is that I did nothing. And that's not in the plain meaning of any words, aiding and giving comfort, sitting on my hands. You can say I have special duties because I'm president. You can say I have special duties because I helped initiate a, a course of action. You know, I, that occurred. But my legal position is I didn't have an obligation to do that upon pain of being an affirmative aider and comforter because I didn't. I just watched and smiled and was happy. But that's not, you know, in ordinary language, doing anything. And the words like aid and, and comforting are active verbs. So that and that's more honest, I think, about what really happened. So, um, Andy, we're going to talk more, I think, in future episodes about all of this. But that's actually, I think, some really interesting stuff. When you do, can I suggest two words to talk about? Philip Thomas. Philip Thomas was a Maryland senator who was excluded from Congress on an aid and comfort theory. He was a loyalist, did not join the South Rebellion. What did he do to give aid and comfort to the rebellion? Two things. His son joined the Confederate Army, and he didn't stop him, uh, and gave him 100 bucks on his way out the door. Maybe it's the 100 bucks, I don't know. Uh, and he resigned from Buchanan's cabinet. Didn't do anything, he just resigned. So I love it. I wanted to talk about this episode, but we ran out of time. My view on that is his exclusion was wrong and unconstitutional at the time. Point one, not the great president. There was not actually a majority vote for any statement. And actually people voted three ways. So if that's the best precedent you've got, I actually don't think it's so great. I think it's in violation of Powell versus McCormick, which, Will, you know, I teach unedited every year because you're my head teacher. So, yes, we're going to talk about that behind your backs. But once we do, <laughs> if you guys want to jump back in, oh, we'd love to have you. I might have to call in. Let me just give you a quote from their article, uh, Akhil, in terms of uh, the idea that um, you know that, that sitting by and doing nothing is not really you know that bad. Um, so, so a, uh, a prominent figure, uh, this is my words, you know, uh, suggested that, here's the quote, in some circumstances, a person's refusal to speak out against rebellion might be tacit support for such rebellion. A quote, man who stands by and says nothing when the peril of his government is discussed cannot be misunderstood. If not hindered, he is sure to help the enemy. And that was mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it all depends on in what context, you know, with what at stake and all the rest. So that's what we're going to talk about next week, Andy. And that's why I want, even if Will and Mike can't come back immediately, I think they're going to need to come back at some point because people are taking seriously their ideas, point one. And I actually think, yes, more, more, more. I want a second article, 128 pages, <laughs> you know, um, all on Trump. 
because I come a long way with you all. Um, our friend uh, Professor McConnell jumps off the train. David Froome, we haven't talked about. He jumps off the train. I'm with you, but I, you know, I'm not yet at um, the final station because I want to hear way more about Donald Trump. We are certainly open to another invitation. And I just want to thank you, Akil. And thank you, Andy, for treating our ideas so respectfully and seriously and examining their details and going down various rabbit holes of justiciability and standing and congressional power. And it, it's just been a delight to, to talk with you again. It does remind me of our days as law school roommates when we'd go on for hours and hours and hours. And as usual, your voice would hold out longer than mine. <laughs> Come back. This podcast is trying to, and it's free, but it's trying to do a public service. And, and we're trying to talk about these things seriously and not in sound bites. And we're all just trying to get the right answer. And just one final thought for our audience. Um, you know, I think you might think that Akil is, is somehow defending Donald Trump here. I mean, what we're trying to do is put these very, very strong arguments to their strongest test so that they, you know, will be resilient when the time comes, um, when they're when they're put to a more official test, if indeed um, they survive, you know, this test. Our audience should be reminded that I think he should be, he honestly should be impeached today and convicted by the Senate by two thirds tomorrow. And I don't think he's immune because he's no longer in office. And I don't think he's immune because of double or triple jeopardy. OK, that's action. And then you don't even have to prove insurrection, rebellion, engage, aid, abet, comfort, whatever. So that's actually my genuine legal position. And remember, not just in the impeachment context, but in the disqualification context, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 context, my position in some ways goes further than Will and Mike, that if the Supreme Court were to rule that Trump was eligible under 14th Amendment, Section 3, in my view, that wouldn't answer the thing. Congress would still be within its rights to disqualify him on January 6th. I'm not defending Trump in every way. Again, these are three law professors and one amazing citizen trying to just figure out what the right constitutional answers are. So just to, to, uh, to one final word, I just think we were just incredibly lucky, you know, to have these great scholars, uh, Professor William Bode and Professor Michael Stokes Paulson. And I just, you know, I think it's, I'm proud as you know, one of the people behind this podcast, along with Akil, um, that people of such stature have chosen this forum as one to seriously explore their ideas. And I'm proud of our audience for tuning in. So thank you all. Uh, you guys didn't disappoint. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. This was yes. great. Thank you. 